Well, hello there. Welcome to episode 22 of A Little Bit Famous with Ted Murata. I said, well, hello there, because I'm super jazzed about the new Obi-Wan Kenobi series coming to Disney+. And um, that happens to be one of his trademark lines. So uh, any of you fellow Star Wars nerds out there, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm back after a week off. I've missed you. I hope you've missed me. And I hope you're kind of excited to listen in to a new episode of the show. My guest this week is Rick Orlando. He's a chef and restaurateur. He is an international travel host. He's an author. Uh, he has a line of seasonings and hot sauces. And he was also a contestant on the extremely popular Food Network show Chopped, where he won twice and also competed against Bobby Flay on the Food Network show Beat Bobby Flay. And you'll just have to listen to this episode to find out whether Rick did in fact beat or not beat Bobby Flay. Um, I, I think this is a special episode because um, it was a kind of a goal of mine when I started the podcast to have guests on the show, I kind of predominantly from the music um, industry or the music and entertainment and arts industry, but I really wanted to have guests on um, that lived creative lives and and um, expressed themselves creatively in other ways. And t to be a chef is, is a, to me, a very creative profession. And uh, Rick and I talk quite a bit about that. And in the future, I hope to have guests on uh, like actors and comedians and novelists, because I think that all of those um, professions, if you will, fit nicely into um you know this this show this podcast so i hope you um enjoy this episode it was really fun to do um rick's a great guy and we had a great conversation and um so here it is episode 22 with chef extraordinaire rick orlando <laughs> My guest today is Rick Orlando. He's a chef, musician, uh, travel host, uh, and and has his hand in many other projects, as I'm sure we'll get into um, talking about today. Hey, Rick, how are you? Welcome to the show. I'm great. How are you? Doing Good. well. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I'm super happy to have you on the show because um, all of my guests so far, I've been doing this for about three months now, have been involved specifically in the music industry in some way, either singers, songwriters, producers. Mm -hmm. um, one of my guests was not just a singer um, and, and performed in a band, but also appeared on Broadway and, and did some acting and television. But the wow. show fundamentally is about creativity. So I, I was really excited to, and I'd been looking forward to having you on the show too, because I, I, I imagine you would agree with me that, 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 that cooking and being a chef is, is a very creative endeavor as well. It is. It is. Um, it's, you know, there's a, there's a funny thing that's happened since the Food Network has kind of taken over our food vocabularies. The word chef has kind of been uh, diminished in the eyes of chefs. The chefs is more of a management job. It's, it's, you know, it's not really, you cook as a chef, but most chefs are mostly managers. Mm -hmm. Most cooks are mostly cooks. It's like a, 
it's like a session player versus a producer. A chef is more like a producer, right? We decide the entire picture, what it's going to sound like or taste like, what it's going to look like. Yeah. And then we have our players who are line cooks and prep cooks put it together for us to present. So, yeah, I, I, it is creative. I tell a lot of people when they came to work for me, you know, they say, well, I want to be a chef. I'm like, well, you know, it's about 10% creative and 90% repetition, just kind of like being in a band. You write a song, then you have to play it a thousand times. You know, it's very similar. And if you don't play it to your audience's expectations, they're disappointed, just like a chef. If you make a dish they love and you can't make it again to their expectations, you expectations, you create disappointments. A lot of it's discipline. A lot of it's understanding the value of, of solid repetition of something that you made of presenting your creativity in a way that doesn't drift too far from what people come to expect from your creativity. It's like if you have a band that plays four chord, uh, you know, punk rock and you go out there and play a nine minute yes style ballad, your audience may look at you like you have uh, six heads and it's kind of yeah. the same way you cook. If, if you got a, for instance, like Jasper has the great fried chicken place. Well, if you went into Jasper's one day and he had caviar on, on uh, you know, wild sturgeon, you'd say, uh, that doesn't really fit in the set, you know? So yeah, yeah, there are yeah. a lot of correlations between music and chefing. Definitely. Yeah. Oh my God, boy, that, I mean, that raises a lot of questions. Um, and, and, I, and I hadn't thought about it that way. I'm really glad that you explained the word chef in a way that honestly I had never heard before. And I think you're right. I, I, and I think it's probably worth bringing up this idea that, that cooking television has become such a phenomenon. Um, how long would you say? I mean, at least 15 years now, right? Probably. The, 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 yeah. Or 20 yeah, years, maybe even. 20. I mean, yeah. easily 20. it started in the nineties and then, you know, the, uh, the big guns, the emeralds, the batalis, you know, the flays all kind of got locked in around 2000 ish and, mm -hmm. and ran it with it until, you know, obviously, you know, what happened to batali and emerald just kind of, is doing his thing and Bobby Flay actually just broke with the Food Network. But yeah, I'd say around late 90s, it really started happening. But the word chef, you know, it is funny when you see like nine-year-old kids and they're calling them chefs. It's like, well, you guys are just cooking food. You're not chefs. You're not ordering. You're not administrating. You're not doing HR. You're not doing costing. You're not doing sanitation patrol. All those things that come with being a chef that are beyond just making a good dish, you know? Yeah. I Anybody mean, would you dish you know right exactly i mean i cook most nights um <laughs> by no means do i consider myself a chef um, well, but i'm sure that a percentage of the dishes you make at home would be well accepted in a restaurant can you do it 110 times a night six days a week is the question you know yeah yeah and also delegate to to the to the right people have have this this the awareness of of um you know the kind of personnel that you need that you right. can I think it's a I think you I mean, it's a fantastic analogy, uh, the chef producer analogy based on the way that you were describing the kind of day to day life of a, of a chef, um, you know, that it does take it, incredible management skills and organization and planning and budgeting. You know, that's all. Those are all things producers do. And also trying to get the best out you know, of your pro players. Producer said exactly to get the yeah. best performance out of out of. Uh, the people that you're working with. I think that's yeah, really motivation. Motivation is important, but also knowing when to say no. That's one yeah. of the hardest things in the modern world because for years, you know, it was more of a dictatorial kitchen, right? The chef said no, it was no. And now it's more like you have to say, well, you know, 
your plate looks good, but I think we may have to make a few adjustments. This is no reflection on you personally, and you're still a good person, but I don't think pomegranate seeds go on your pancakes, whatever, you know, yeah. it's, it's a very different world now. Yeah. Did you, I mean, did you, uh, this is a question I've obviously wanted to ask you, but, and it's basically a, when did you get your start question, but did you grow up in that, in that world when it was much grittier and tougher and chefs were, were much more brutally honest and things like that? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I started cooking in the eighties. I'm old. Uh, <laughs> when I, I was playing music and we all needed to have a way to make a living because we, you know, we were doing original music, so we weren't doing covers, so we weren't making a ton of money. And at that time, I was in New Haven and then in Boston, and most of the restaurants, you know, lunch. Well, let's start with something. Lunch was a different world back in the eighties and nineties. Can you see me? I'm kind of slouching. Yeah, I can see you just fine. Um, and lunches were very busy, especially in Boston cities. You know, everyone went out to lunch. Now it's a little different, brown bagging and takeout, but. So most of the kitchens I worked in were stocked with musicians who worked these lunch shifts, which were like 9.30 to 3.30. So you can still have your gig, you still rehearse, you can still do the night stuff. So that's when I basically started. And it took a while. I mean, I, I never wanted to be in a restaurant, but it was a good way to make money. I waited tables for lunch, I, I cooked, and I was able to pay my rent so I could have my band, which was important, right? Mm-hmm. And then at a certain point, I got a job in Cambridge, Mass. at a restaurant called The Harvest, which was pretty groundbreaking for its day. We had a daily menu. This was like 83, 84. We brought in unusual ingredients and I got motivated by being there. I realized it wasn't just flipping burgers. It was more to being a cook. It yeah. was culture. It was knowledge. It was, you know, info. And it, it kind of bit me, but I didn't really get serious about it until we started having kids. <laughs> until my mm. wife said, can you get a job? Uh, and my, my band, I was in a band called Skin in Boston in the 80s. And we did a few records and came really close. And then that kind of collapsed around 88. And at that point, I moved to New York and was still doing music, but started getting serious about restaurant world management and stuff. And then we, when we moved to Albany in 89, I had no intention of being a chef. I was still in bands. I had about, at that time, about six earrings. Uh, a couple of tattoos. My hair was a little cropped. I remember showing up at an employment agency in Albany as looking for a position as restaurant manager because I had been managing in the city. And the woman just looked at me and said, sir, the way you look, I can probably get you a job as a dishwasher. I had a resume a mile long, but yeah, right, I, right. I didn't look the part. And that's how I ended up in kitchens, really. I, I went to Yates Street which I don't know if you remember Yates Street, but it was at the time Ogden's and Yates Street were like the two big restaurants in Albany. Oh, yes. Kenny, Kenny Linden, who was the owner of Yates Street. I guess the analogy would be he's kind of like me then. He was in his late 50s. He was a jazz cat from uh, Providence or Rhode Island or wherever he was from and looked at my resume. I, I applied for a bartending gig and he said, my chef just got in a motorcycle accident. You want to be my chef. Now I had never been the boss. I'd always been a cook. Mm -hmm. I had been a manager in the front of the house. So I said, all right, I did that for a few months. And then uh, I was living on Dove street. So Joe Palmer, who owned Justin's and I got to know each other. And he said, Hey, you want to take over my kitchen? You can do whatever you want. And that was it. Once I got into Justin's, it was like, now I'm a chef. So I was about 30, 29. 
still, you know, still making music. I had a studio in my apartment and was recording some cool stuff, but really the cooking life took over my life at that point. Interesting. I just want to say real quick for people who, um, you know, I, I have listeners from all over the country and all over the world. Okay. So Rick and I are both from the same general area um, in the capital region of, of New York state. Um, and, uh, you know, Albany was, I actually spent many years living in Albany too, the capital of New York state. And when I was a kid, my parents used to take me to Ogden's and, um, and Lasserre and a few other places. And those were like, the, yeah, those were, those were my first tastes as a young child of at least what I thought at the time was like what a really nice restaurant experience would be mm-hmm. as opposed to fast food or, you know, anything yeah. like that, you know, where you would, you would be there for a good hour and a half or so, you mm-hmm. know, over the course of a meal and, and, right. and, and all those sorts of things. And I, I, I always enjoyed that. Um, <clears throat> and then yeah. Justin's of course is a, uh, at least in my mind, was sort of a legendary, uh, <laughs> legendary place on Lark Street, in Albany, <laughs> Albany, New York. And if you're ever in Albany, you should check out Lark Street because it's sort of um, the heart of the of, of I don't know what do you want to call it the vibe of all we call the, the village of the city there. Yeah, 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 exactly. Justin's, you know, Justin's at the time was more known as a jazz club than a hangout. Yeah, yeah. and they had a tiny little kitchen and you know basic little menu of burgers and roast beef sandwiches, but. When I went into Justin's, it reminded me of the Lower East Side. It reminded me of Third Avenue. It had a vibe because of the fact that it was kind of downstairs and, excuse me, <clears throat> and it had a uh, live jazz. And I said, you know, this is the kind of place for me. I felt more at home mm-hmm. than in a fine dining restaurant. I felt like I was in New York still and was able to take a, what was, ha- you know, it's funny, what was happening in New York at that time were places that were jazz clubs or, even like, you know, rock and roll clubs were introduced or places that had cool music or cool vibes were introducing hipper and better food. And in Albany, it was still in the day where to get good food, you had to have a white tablecloth and sit with your hands folded. And I wanted to try to yeah. bridge that gap where come in in t-shirts and, a, and blue jeans, no tablecloth, but the food is going to kick your ass. Yeah. And that was kind of something that I learned in New York, that you didn't have to be stodgy to be great. You can yeah. be edgy. You can be a little funky. I mean, Justin said that one little men's room where you basically couldn't even put two feet in there. It was so small. I know. You know, you just pissed and hope it made it to the toilet. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm in New York now. You know, this yeah, is yeah, yeah. Fine dining. This is rock and roll. So that's good. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. And, and it do, you're right, because I've spent a lot of time as a, someone who played in a band, lots and lots and lots of time in New York City. And and yes, that little strip of real estate on Lark Street, especially Justin's kind of made you feel like you weren't really in Albany, which is a sort of middling town that doesn't have a tremendous nightlife. But if you were in a place like Justin's, it was like, oh, this is cool. This is this feels a little bit more hip and a little bit more interesting. Right. And QE2 um, was still happening then, you know, and it was, it was yeah, fun yeah. Um, so did you, um, did you ever th- think about going, like you, you mentioned that you hadn't really t- had the bug, but then you sort of started to get the bug, uh, that is to say to, to, to maybe get into professionally into cooking or being a chef. Did you ever think about going to a place like the Culinary Institute of America or doing any of that kind of formal classical training or, uh, or whatever they, they describe it as? Well, I later I did, and I, I took a couple of uh, what they call weekend extension courses, but 
No, I, I am a, I'm kind of an insatiable reader. And uh, at the time, you know, there was no food TV. There was no YouTube. Everything was like, I used to go to the library and take out like 20 books and bring them home Yeah, and just read and read and eat. Um, I, I actually own a domain called Eating the Neighborhood and I shopped a show that never got bought. But I used to love and still do. But at the time when I was learning, eating food not in fine restaurants but in funky restaurants in little ethnic restaurants and then ciphering the food and turning it into something more i would i don't want to say more acceptable to white folk but something a little easier to approach and you know um i guess let's do another musical um analogy the talking heads took Mm -hmm. like a lot, especially by the fourth album, we're taking a lot of African music that wasn't that popular yes. and packaging it for college kids who could get introduced to that. And I was kind of doing the same thing with food. I was taking a lot of global food. Who was going to go down to, you know, Northern Boulevard and eat at Roy's Caribbean who lived in Clifton Park? They might, they might not, but they would certainly come to Justin's. We had a parking lot, you know, we had yeah. things that made a comfort zone. Yeah. And I was able to introduce uh, a more middle middle of the road audience to food that they wouldn't find in their suburban strip malls. And that was kind of, again, a lot, a lot like music, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And I, and I mean, I think that's fantastic. And, and I've, I've, this is something I talk about a lot on the show and it, it really comes down to curiosity and um, or the lack thereof. Um, and um, I, I feel like I sound like, really judgmental when i say this and maybe i just am being judgmental i don't know but it you know it kind of breaks my heart that 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 there are so many people who aren't curious who aren't interested in 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 going to some out of the way place or or trying street food or you know and i say this as someone who as a kid didn't really have a very expansive palate um Mm -hmm. And, and wasn't necessarily I, I was probably more inclined to want to go with the safe bet when it came to things like food or other aspects of life. But then I did develop this, as you said, this sort of insatiable um, side of myself. And, and to me, where if I went somewhere, I was not going to go to a chain restaurant that I could eat at anywhere in the in the country. I was going to find someplace that was sort of out of the way or uh, maybe even more specifically go where the locals eat. And this is this yeah. is particularly with local with international travel, you know, to try and find the place where the locals are. Oh eating. yeah, especially when you're on the road. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because if you think about when you're young, your palate is not that daring, and it's kind of that way in your DNA. But as you hit your 20s, things open up. For me, it was interesting because when I was in New Haven, I was very young. I was like 18. I moved out of my house. I started booking a little dive bar and putting punk bands in there when no one was doing it, had my own band. And there was a scene, right? There was, there was this whole New Haven scene that was kind of art rock, punk rock, underground, all evolving and developing around a real mainstream rock scene. I mean, Michael Bolton is from New Haven. And uh, there was all these bands that were pretty mainstream, Jasper Rath, like progressive rock. And there were clubs like Toad's Place that had you know, we used to call it rock arm bands, you know, like cover bands on the weekend and all that. But then they started sneaking, you know, in bands that were on tour that were more part of the new wave of bands. I remember seeing the police and David Johansson and the Ramones and the Stranglers and all these bands would play at Toad's place. But during the week when they were between Boston and New York and introducing that to younger people is pretty similar to, 
introducing food to younger people. What happened in that scene in New Haven is there were some other people from the city, some people older than me, and we would hang out after a gig and they'd say, hey, let's go to Blessings. What's Blessings? Oh, it's a Vietnamese restaurant. That's a little dive. Or let's go have Szechuan food. Now, back then, late 80s, what was Chinese food? It was egg rolls and pork fried rice. Yeah. Suddenly, yeah. I'm going out with some older people from New York who are involved in the music scene and we're having Szechuan food and we're having you know spicy stuff and you know all this cool food. So through the music scene, I got introduced to different food, Indian food. Like I moved to Boston. You know, we were poor. We were poor artists, musicians, cooks. And one of the cooks I worked with who was a little older who had been around said, hey, we're going to go out. Let's go out to get Indian food. I'd never had Indian food. I was like 22 years old. But yeah. introduced me to it. It was you know similar kind of experience of meeting an older musician who turned you on to King Crimson when you had never heard yeah. that before. Your brain just goes, what? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? right, yeah. And it takes off. And once that, once that, once your brain opens like that, to me, it's like a floodgate. You just want to try more and you want to try more and you want to hear more and you want to hear more. So yeah. I'm back to the, you know, the music food metaphors, but they're very, they're very similar to me. Yeah. I mean, it's when it comes to food, I, I, I mean, well, music is the same way too, but when it comes to food, I absolutely agree with you. And I have to say that um, uh, the first time I ever had bone marrow was at your restaurant. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, again, just, you know, because I as I get older, as I, you know, and I get more curious. Well, I guess I was, I've been curious for a long time, but but I became a real foodie at a certain point in my life. And so it was always like, what's new? What's different? Mm-hmm. And there was really nothing off limits for me in terms of things to try. Um, although I must say, and maybe you could sort of um, change my mind. on this, But like there are a few things I don't think I'll ever eat. And and those things include things like animal eyeballs mm, eyeballs um, i've had one once yeah i can't well it would be the consistency as far as mm. i'm concerned i think it would be horrifying to me it was um, a dare it was a dare. <laughs> that's great i love that um but yeah so i yeah i mean i think the curiosity thing is so good when it comes to food it's just so so cool to explore new 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 things and try new things and um, I try to do that with my kids. And you said you have kids. Is that something that you from from a young age, were you trying to do that with your kids to try and get them to expand their their palate? Oh, absolutely. You know, and it's funny because, you know, how kids are. They go through phases and a lot of it, you know, if you research the, uh, the brain and the DNA at a certain age when kids are like beyond toddling four five, six, seven, eight, nine, they reject a lot of flavors out of defense. I was reading that kids little kids don't like bitter because in a, in a wild world, they may be eating poison weeds out in the field. So their mm. natural reaction is to avoid that. Like a bitter is a flavor that develops as you get older, right? You yeah. Amaro, arugula, broccoli, rob, those things. No, I fed my kids a lot of stuff and it's neat. I have a granddaughter and my son and, and a daughter-in-law are doing this whole program where she eats everything. She's... <laughs> 15 months old, I have videos of her sitting there just eating mussels and stacking the shell in the bowl. When you introduce young kids to every type of food, two things happen. One is their their palate will expand, although they may go through the Cheerio stage, which all kids go through, Mm -hmm. but it also helps to uh, alleviate um, allergies because they're, they're getting the the different products in their body young, so they don't have uh, strong reactions. It's funny to watch Maya. There were, my son was just in Italy for almost two and a half months with her, and 
just eating everything the adults ate and the adults are fascinated because they're saying, oh, you want pasta with butter? And we'll eat, no, she'll have the clam sauce with anchovies. <laughs> she likes <laughs> it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, not, or, not ordering off the kid's menu. Not, right. not getting the grilled cheese, but what a funny story years and years ago when our kids were little and we always took the kids on little beach weeks once, even though we had the restaurant, we'd find a way to go to the beach in the summer. And one year we were in Rock, Watch Hill, Rhode Island. So my son, Willie was probably six, maybe seven. My daughter, Sid is about a year older and Terry, the baby's five years younger. And we went to this restaurant in Watch Hill and they had a kid's menu and the kid's menu had a little spoof. It had Three kids' items, maybe a little pizza, mac and cheese, and chicken fingers. But then item, those are items one, three, and five. Items two, four, and six were like octopus tentacles and gurgly stuff. Like they this as a joke. Yeah. And so my son says, I will have the octopus tentacles, please. <laughs> and the woman said, uh, that's not real. And he looked so forlorn, like, what do you mean that's not real? That's kids like that, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my unfortunately, my kids are in that stage where they're you know, I'm like, oh, do you want to try this? And they're like, mm, you know, maybe, um, you know, I, I, I the thing that I love about my kids is that they really want to be curious about mm -hmm. food. But I think at the same time, they're also a little hesitant because probably they're just scared that it's going to taste like crap, <laughs> you know, and, uh, yeah. and I found I the secret is to make them feel like uh, create a little elitism. Your friend, your friends are all nerds. They don't eat this. You're, you're going to be cool. You're going to have this pasta puttanesca, you know? Right. And again, if it's delicious, kids will like it. I mean, spicy, bitter, those are things that take time. But if, if it's salty or sweet and delicious, you can get beyond the traditional salty sweet and introduce some cool things to them. My, again, Willie used to bring little containers of capers to school and just nibble on capers. And his friends mm -hmm. were like, what are those? He goes, well, they're flower buds from Sicily and they're preserved in salt. They're like, you're a weirdo. And he's, <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't care, you know, because I taught him that he was cooler than them. They were eating chicken nuggets and he was eating, you know, little sardines with hot sauce. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what? The capers thing just actually raises an interesting point or an interesting question that I have, which is, um, dare I use the word food fads or the phrase food fads or, or food trends or something. Mm -hmm. And, and you've been cooking for a long time, you know, saying that you were started getting involved in the early eighties and, and, and here it is the, the 21st century. And so I, I can imagine that you have seen up close and personal um, and probably have some opinions about how food styling, food plating, mm -hmm. um, food trends have changed over the decades. Um, do you, it, this may seem like an odd question, and I usually don't ask what's your favorite this or that, but is there, a, has there been an era in cooking that, that was particularly, um, you know, um, intriguing to you and fun and exciting and the, whatever this new trend was, you were really excited about? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Ted, that's really, that's really cool. There's a book by Andrew Friedman called Chefs and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Mm. And it's about the revolution of American restaurant food from like the mid seventies through the late eighties, how we went from having French, Italian, old school Chinese and steakhouses as restaurants to having anything goes. Mm -hmm. The most exciting time for me was the mid to late eighties when we're like world music and world food both came into our cultural, you know, sphere. And I started learning all the different, types of ethnic food that were out there. Cookbooks started coming out. I started learning Vietnamese and started learning 
you know, different that Mexican wasn't just ground beef tacos, but Mexican regional, uh, you know, and, and a lot of chefs had in, in America and in California, New York broke ground with introducing those kind of things. Um, so that was a big time for me, I think, when when ethnic food became something that you could turn into American restaurant food where you can take. Uh, how, how do I put this? Up until like maybe the early 90s, the only place you would ever be able to have Peruvian yellow sauce would be in a Peruvian restaurant. Mm -hmm. And suddenly chefs were introducing these flavors in what we call at the term at the time was called New American. Mm -hmm. I branded my whole New World home cooking based on all the immigrant flavors that came into this country. And that came from that scene. And it, it I don't want to go back to music, but I do. It was a parallel with what was happening in music by the mid to late 80s. There was a much bigger global influence on, on, on grooves, on music, on instrumentation. King Sonny a Day became popular and all this different stuff. Yeah. And, and so it was, it was, they were kind of step step with food and music. Um, and then, you know, things go through phases. The big economy during Clinton brought the, uh, the big trio of uh, caviar, truffles, and foie gras, and the most expensive thing you could put on a plate. I didn't really buy into it. Not that I don't like those things and I did do them, but I thought it was kind of pretentious and, you know, now it's all over the place. I mean, now there's every type of, you know, this plant base, there's uh, you know, fine dining with little eyedroppers of sauce, which yeah. don't turn on at all. Um, really turns me off. There's the fatty, my wife calls it fatty, fat, fat food, where it's like, you know, a fried chicken sandwich with melted cheese and mayo and bacon and ham. And, you know, yeah. sure. It's immediate satisfaction, but, you know, I, I've always been a proponent of uh, clean food and kind of like the same thing. I'm a proponent of underproduced music. I don't necessarily like overproduced music. I like it a little more raw. I like my food a little underproduced that way. So that all came from that that influencing of the late 80s, of not yeah. overpopulating, you know, not using chemicals, not using powders, not, not you know, I'm not, I'll give you a good analogy when I at the bistro i brought i got this local farm doing these beautiful um local red leeks they were beautiful and i brought them in i showed the cooks look at these and i put them in the cooler and the next day i said where are those leeks one of my cooks said oh check it out man i charred them and made a powder out of them i said you what <laughs> yeah i charred them and made powder i said and i tasted it it just tastes like burnt onions and i said you took a beautiful pure delicious product and turned it into black powder yeah this is cool right i'm like Yes, but is cool good? Sometimes cool is good. Sometimes cool is like poof and gone. So, you know, that trend kind of, uh, we have a nickname, a couple of chefs, we call it in name only. You go to a lot of restaurants and you'll see all these words. There's no real, um, there's no real, uh, what's the word, creativity in the way menus are written out. We'll say, you know, buffalo loin, cipollini onion, this, 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 like a list of ingredients. Yeah. And so when you're eating it, you're kind of looking for the ingredients that they're on, on the list. And a lot of times you're manipulated to the point where you don't even know where the hell they are or what, it, what it's supposed to taste like. So I, I like, I like things a little more in your face. I just like music. I like getting your face, you know? Yeah. More in your face. Yeah. And more I mean, honestly, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I, I feel like you and I are both like trying not to overuse this, the, the comparison between music and, and, and food, but Why not? Let's, just, let's just do it. Right. Do Who it. cares? Yeah. 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 And maybe the David Bowie of chefs. I'll take it. You know? Yeah, that's great. And um, but yeah, I, now I now I'm thinking about it's interesting that you said the late 80s were a really interesting time for you because 
you know, I, I'm a child of the 80s. I was born in 1972. So I was, you know, um, going, getting into high school, 1986, I was a freshman in high school. So we're coming to the end of the 80s. And the 80s, to me, um, in many ways, as far as food was concerned, um, what, you were either going to eat in a sort of mass food service environment like a McDonald's or, you know, then there was maybe something that was slightly higher up. I, I can't, I'm struggling to think of something. Well, but like Bonanza or those kind of cheap steakhouses. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, really yeah. high kill those places. Yeah, TGI Fridays, you know. Yeah. Um, and then you went to a particularly nice restaurant and, and the food was was plated, you know, very nicely. And, and but I, I, it, in some ways it sort of felt corporate in the same way that the music felt corporate in the mm-hmm. 80s. Big hair bands. And you, you use the word overproduced. I mean, God, overproduced to, to the to the hilt. Yeah. And and then and, but then we transitioned as we started getting into the very late 90s and into the very early 90s. The music scene changed radically yes. with Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and that the whole sort of yeah. burst of grunge. And um, so I'm, I, it's City. interesting. All about Sound City. Sound oh, City's, God, I you know. know I know. Right? Yeah. Everybody who's listening has to watch that documentary about Sound City and uh, Dave Grohl's document. That is Dave Grohl's documentary and the, and the beautiful Neve console they have in there. Um, but so I wonder, you know, because culture is one of those things that it doesn't sometimes one particular element of our culture leads the change. Um, but sometimes it's just sort of a general evolution that's happening kind of on all fronts. And I'm wondering if that trend of the change in the way food was being prepared, as you were describing in the late nineties was just a general part of a reaction to the overproduced eighties and, and, and even just the Reagan era uh, kind yeah. of, uh, ethos. I, I I think yes. I think you're right on the money there. You know, kitchen environments um, for a long time they were very rigid, and by the mid '80s, as I was saying, a lot of musicians, especially a lot of underground musicians who weren't making a lot of money, ended up in kitchens, and that culture came into the kitchen. So we definitely. That rock and roll brigade, those tough guy tattoo, I mean, tattoos were just beginning to get popular, but that tough kitchen, um, the influence of the music world made its way into the kitchen. And I don't necessarily mean global food. I mean more attitude, more grunge, more punk, more uh, stripped down, you know, let's let's get real Um started making its way into kitchens. And that's why you saw places like Justin's and all over New York City, all these restaurants that were serving really delicious killer food, but with an attitude, you know, with, yeah. with definitely you got the attitude when you went in there, you know, you felt like you were not going into uh, Phil Collins's, you know, $7 million studio. You were kind of going yeah. to Sound City with yeah. the old board. And that was, that was part of the attitude. And that was, that was a really fun time to be in my twenties because First of all, I was in a band, so all the cooks would come see me play, and we'd see a lot of the guys were in bands. But the kitchens, the vibe were very. Uh, there was there was people who were really focused on their professional cooking career, but a lot of them knew it was a transitional job. But they, it was fun. We were all there, and, we were, and the 
the boom boxes were playing like all kinds of amazing music. We all took turns with our, we had the, you know, the double cassette where they would flip and yeah. we all made our own mixes for the kitchen. And one would be like the joy division hour. And the next one, you know, would be like, Oh, this jerk's going to play Billy Joel. Oh, we'll get through it. You know, but there was all these <laughs> different styles of music that were being played in the kitchen, including, uh, you know, a lot of, Afro pop and world music, whatever we had going on, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah, the music scene in the kitchens and the food scene coming from the music people in the kitchens, they were all, they went hand in hand to me. Yeah. It was, it was, I mean, yeah. Okay. Well now, I mean, this has been, this has been percolating in my mind, my mind, not just since we started talking, but really for the past few weeks, um, since I read this, I had, I happened to read an article about um, the late Anthony Bourdain, um, and it stuck in my mind. Some articles just have that ability to kind of hit me in, and um, as I'm sure is the case for many people. But and then you mentioned this book. Uh, what was the author's name? And the title Andrew, was Andrew Friedman. Andrew Friedman. Yeah, he's uh, he's a cookbook writer, but he wrote this book. It's called Chefs and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Chefs and, and Drugs it, and Rock and Roll. Yes. Anybody who's into like restaurants and food. And why why restaurants and food in America are the way they are? It's a must read. It's a quick read, and it starts with uh, Chez Panisse in the seventies and ends up, I think, by the late eighties in New York City, what was happening at the River Cafe and all those kind of places. But it's a great history. It tells the story of a lot of different chefs who we think as mainstream now. For instance, a lot of people may think, oh, Nirvana's mainstream. But when you first heard Smells Like Teen Spirit on the radio, I mean, I I first heard Smells Like Teen Spirit on the radio driving down Central Avenue. And I did a U-turn. I heard it on the radio. Yeah. I did a U-turn and there was a strawberries on set, maybe sec, uh, Central and Lexington, like a record store. Strawberries. Yeah. yeah. And I did a, a real record on Central store. Avenue and parked my car and went in and bought the cassette that yeah. minute, you know, yeah. uh, that, that, that's, that's that rush, you know, it's like, wow, something cool is happening now. Something new oh is happening. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. But, but now you look back, Oh, we have Nirvana is like my, my parents music, you know, but you had to be there when it happened. It's the same thing. So the metaphor food wise on that is, there's a whole chapter on Wolfgang Puck. Now he's, you know, Wolfgang yeah. Puck, mainstream and he's got box pizza, but in like 1980 or 79, when he was putting goat cheese and smoked salmon on pizza, that was a revolution. That was the sex pistols. That made chefs go, whoa, I could do that. I, I don't have, I can do that. You know, he, yeah. he, those little things are so taken for granted. But when you were there, when they happened, it was mind blowing. It was like, yeah. the world is changing. I had the opportunity to, to change things because other people are changing things. And it was really fun. Yeah. Well, so, uh, uh, but what I want what I was getting at it and what I want to ask you about it. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, that's okay. This show is all about that. Um, where, whatever tangents we go on is totally fine. <laughs> um, but I, I'm, I'm wondering, because again, I mean, to me, I, I see a parallel between the music industry and, and the, the, the food industry or cooking and being a chef and things like that. Um, you know, the, the book that you refer to has the word drugs, the book you refer to has the word drugs in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd read this article about Anthony Bourdain, whose story is well known, you know, that he had been an addict and, and, um, and, and that the, at least in his rendering of, 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 you know, his experience, kitchens were full of addicts or, or alcoholics and things like that. 
And I'm wondering if that was your experience um, and if you would be willing to share a little bit about what that energy is like in a hot kitchen and, and where, where you know people are struggling w- with uh, other issues like addiction or depression or anxiety. And they're, they're in there and they're bringing it all in there into a, into a tight room where there's a lot happening. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a lot to be said there. I mean, I certainly remember snorting lines off those beautiful silver platters that they had in restaurants for our herbs. <laughs> but um, yeah, in the older days of restaurants, 80s, early 90s, those terms, addiction, depression, they weren't terms. They were like yeah. you were a partier or you weren't. And that's a lot of people went too far. Um, there were a lot of artists and musicians who were working in kitchens who burned out, you know, um, it was, it was kind of crazy, but I don't, you know, it was definitely kitchens were definitely in a restaurants were definitely an attraction for people who partied because it was quick and easy money. You didn't have to wear a suit. You didn't have to brush your hair. You know, you didn't have to do the things that I don't, I don't know if you remember you're 72. So you remember, but you know, you couldn't just go to work in blue jeans and a t-shirt back in the day. You no. had to put on regular clothes. You had to brush your hair. And kitchens, you didn't have to. Kitchens were a little more rough and ready. Um, waiters did, but kitchens didn't. And so that, you know, it attracted a certain kind of person that liked the work. It also attracted a certain kind of person who loved adrenaline. Yes. Right? A restaurant yes. and a, adrenaline junkie. Now, a lot of people who are adrenaline junkies also have problems with drugs, but not all. Right. I mean, I never really had problems with drugs. I've always smoked weed. I've done drugs, but I've never been like a, pr- a problem drug person mm-hmm. or an alcoholic. But the different types of personalities that are in kitchens could be led astray for sure. Um, that being said, and it was a pretty dynamic place to be. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of banging around, a lot of energy, a lot of things that probably would not be acceptable in today's culture. That's for sure. Um, but hell of a lot of fun <laughs> yeah. Sure. yeah yeah and i i mean i don't mean to yeah i mean it's 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 an interesting thing because i personally i'm in recovery mm-hmm. um but and so i and i could certainly share for hours and hours about how much fun it was sometimes yeah. uh, you know in, in my particular case well, don't let me tempt you by these conversations no, oh god no no <laughs> oh, <damn. laughs> no okay. you don't you don't have to worry about that yeah I'm, uh, i feel i feel very but, fortunate that I've, I've never been um I've never had that addictive to any particular drug or whatever personality. I've always dabbled. And like I said, I, I, I've been good with weed my whole life, but, um, but there are people who do. And I think a lot of it is, you know, it's, it's wired into your head. Some people are more re- easily addicted than others. Some people, and it would be a dangerous place. You know, uh, the judgment zone was very different in the eighties. Coke was everywhere. Coke was in, on Wall Street. I mean, Coke was common, you know. And yes, it wasn't even looked down upon, really. Um, what's happening now with with the you know the opioids and all that's a whole different story. That's a whole another podcast. But back then, it was it was part of this the social social fabric. Yeah, you know, you went out and people drank and maybe did a line or whatever, took a quaalude. That was what life was like. It wasn't, I didn't feel like a freak or, or someone who was living on the edge doing that. It was kind of the way the world was. Um, those things have all changed. Kitchens, I mean, 
there was also the older generation. When I first started in the industry, the older people in kitchens, there was a lot more alcoholism. A lot of them were Vietnam vets or even even like people who would, the older chefs were like a lot of Europeans who had been in military. A lot of military people ended up starting kitchens uh, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And by the time I got in, they were the 60-year-old older chef from Romania who drank three bottles of vodka a day because that was that's what he had become, you know? Yeah. Um, so that influence was very different. You know, the old school drinking chefs. When I first started working in my first kitchen, it was a cooler full of rolling rock ponies full all day. And people just drank beer all day. Mm-hmm. And I never did. I drank one or two and I didn't like it. I couldn't work. I couldn't work yeah. drunk. I, I was very conscientious about what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I could work high. I'd be very like fastidious and focused <laughs> as opposed to drinking. But a lot, yeah, a lot of chefs drank a lot. And it's still a problem. And there's no doubt about it. Um, yeah, I was going to ask if, the, if less now, I think yeah. it's less now. I think there's again, a much, much more, uh, it's look, it's not, it's not embraced. It's not accepted. It's not like, Oh yeah, let's go. You know, we're all cooks. Let's all get hammered. I mean, not that they don't do cause they do, but I think it's less now. I think, you know, the human resources thing in, in the food to service industry has gotten catching up to the rest of the world. Yeah. The, not, you know, put yeah. the cooks back and, Give them some beers and they'll make 500 veal marsalas tonight and no one cares. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was wondering. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering if, if the culture in the, in, in, in kitchens had changed at all, but yeah, you know, I mean, what I was going to say was, you know, because my experience being in a band and I've shared about this on the podcast, but you know, when you're in a touring band, it's sort of like a prerequisite to drink and it sounds, or, or do drugs, you know, it's part of the lifestyle. And it sounds like that was what it was like in kitchens. And that makes perfect sense to me. Um, and it certainly makes perfect sense. Like for me, I'm, uh, my drug of choice was alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, had I not become a musician, I might've become a bartender, <laughs> you know, you I mean, never know, right? uh, yeah. just to, you know, have quick and easy access to that lifestyle and, um, you know, and on and on and on, who knows. Right. But, a lot of it had to do with the crash too. I mean, it's like when you play a really intense gig, first thing you do, ah, let's wind down. Let's whatever we're going to do. Let's do some. Yeah. Drugs or dr- same thing in a kitchen. When you work a, you know, a cook would work average ten hour shift, but the last four hours were service, which was like, bam, 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 and you're working really hard. Your brain is focused. You're plating, 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 and then it ends. You clean up, and you're like, what's next? How do I yeah. keep that high? You know, and I think that's how a lot of people get into into trouble is they they want to sustain that that adrenaline that they have while they're putting out a lot of food because it is a dance. You're moving. You're listening, you're cooking, there's heat, there's fire, there's bending. It's a lot of physicality, a lot of uh, chanting to each other, you know. And so when that's all over, it's like a letdown, right? It's like it all bottom falls out. So I think a lot of people then will move to staying high, you know. Yeah. I love the way you just described that. I, I mean, that was that was something that I was hoping a place I was hoping we would get to is is for you with someone with such rich depth of experience in kitchens to articulate that feeling when things are humming in a, in a kitchen. So I'm, 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 I'm glad that you, that you described that because I think, um, I think as someone myself personally, who's very fascinated by, by the world of cooking and, 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 and likes to think about the sort of behind the scenes aspect of it, I think people listening to this episode would be very intrigued to hear what you just said. Uh, yeah. the, the way that you described it, the dance and the, and the chanting and the excitement and the rush. I mean, I'm, the, the fact that you use the word adrenaline 
that is what we seek on stage too, as artists, you know, that, that, that euphoria, that, that high. And you're right. Afterward, you're sort of like, huh? Well, yeah, let's keep that going. Right. You know? And the applause. I mean, the other thing that yes. you get is the applause when people, when you're going well and everyone's loving your food and you're getting compliments and you're not getting a lot of things sent back or you're not having a lot of little minor disasters like, Oh shit, I burnt the string beans or whatever. You know, you're getting, you're getting uh, praise and applause. So those are all things that get you high in a different way. They give you adrenaline and make you happy. And then it ends and you're looking at a dirty mess that you have to clean up for an hour. And then, ah, what's next, you know? Yeah. And, and it's, you know, the, the bigger the team, the more adrenaline there is. I remember when I, when I moved into the kitchen at Justin's, it was just me and another person, just two people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We kind of had telekinetics, you know, it's like, Whoever's making salads and I cooked all the hot food. Um, when you're in a bigger kitchen, there's a lot more communication, a lot more teamwork, and the adrenaline gets, uh, it's a different kind of adrenaline. You know, like when you're within yourself, it's, if you're just jamming with one person as opposed to trying to, you know, write a song with six guys, it's, it's a whole different experience, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Communal versus, versus the more personal. Yourself. Right. You kind of withdraw to yourself and just focus and bam, bam, bam. And I'm cooking and I'm working and, and I could be stoned on weed and do that, but having a big team, I can't because it, it takes too much cross communication, paying attention. You're not, mm-hmm. you're not internalizing everything. It's more external. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I have, I have, I mean, I have just some questions about um, what you're up to now. Cause I mean, I w- w- we're friends on Facebook and I'm always sort of following your posts and, and you have a lot going on. But I and so we'll get to that in a sec. But I do want to ask you about your Food Network experience and for mm-hmm. for people, because we did talk about it. And, um, you know, you have some things to say about how the Food Network had changed uh, people's understanding of the word chef, et cetera. Um, I, I would just offer my opinion about the Food Network and shows like it, uh, networks like it, which is that it 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 seems to have democratized cooking. Uh, in the sense that people feel more confident to, to prepare their own food, ha- maybe have more sort of enthusiasm, curiosity about it. Yeah, um, I agree. A lot of but, yeah, but maybe on the on, on the flip side, think their food is better than it really is. <laughs> <laughs> or, or consider themselves to be. Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but but you know, you won chopped and um, twice. So you know, just for listeners who who are just getting to know Rick Orlando right, right now, he he was a contestant on this on the very famous show on on Food Network called Chopped and won it twice. And I and I'm curious to know what what that experience is was like for you. First, are you a by nature, are you a competitive person? And second, what was that overall time on a set like that cooking as a challenge like? Okay, first question. Am I a competitive person? I am a competitive person, but I'm not an overtly competitive person. I'm more internally competitive. I'm not one of those, I'm going to kick your ass, you know, pumped up uh, type person. Um, but yeah, I, 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 do, I do like to be good at what I do. And I do like to, you know, win for sure. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, people meet me, they don't think of me so much as a competitive person, as a driven person, but yeah, I'm definitely competitive. Um, and as I get older, I'm more competitive because you have more to prove. It's weird when you're young, you you have a lot to prove. Then you go through this whole middle chapter of your life, you know, where you're just one of everybody 
And then suddenly when I was on Chopped, I was 30 years older than some of those people. I was 50, 51, mm -hmm. 50, mm -hmm. no, yeah, 52. One of the guys that was in the final round with is a, if you look at, look at the episodes, I watched, he, he said, I'm going to show this old guy, this young guy's got some things he doesn't know. Oh, man. And that yeah. motivates me. You know, it's like, yeah. fuck you. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll kick your ass. Yeah. <laughs> no, Chopped was, Chopped was um, a really cool experience. One of the things that I think made me win, aside from the fact that I know how to cook, was that my wife was really good counsel for me. She kept saying, we watched when we knew I was going to be on. I did the screen test and got approved. And then it was three months before my episode. So we started watching Chop to really understand what goes on in the show. Right. Yeah. And her point was, and it was really what led me to win. A lot of chefs go on there and take all these crazy chances trying to make something they've never made before. Out yeah. of ingredients, and they fail often. And she said, you know, how many dishes have you cooked in your life? And at that point, I'd say, I don't know, 10,000. I've cooked everything, every type mm -hmm. of ethnic food, almost every ingredient that I've had on Chopped, I've cooked before. Right. She said, look at the ingredients. And she's a lawyer. She's got a different kind of brain. And look at those ingredients and think, what have I done with these before that was good? And try to recreate that. Do what you know. So that's what I did. I stuck with what I knew, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, it worked out well for me. I actually made jerk quail because I had quails and coconuts and kale and raisinets and i'm thinking well my jerk has kale on the plate and we use coconut and the rice and uh raisinets can easily be cooked down into a sweet and spicy sauce we use molasses in our jerk so you know i was that, that's what my brain was doing was taking those ingredients and turning them into dishes that i knew how to make as, as opposed to just winging it and guessing because i'm not I don't like to wing it. I like, I'm kind of methodical that way, you know? Yeah. That makes sense. Now, the cool thing about Chopped is, yeah. And, and what they do on Chopped and all these shows at the Food Network and reality TV in general, which I had no respect for until I actually did it, is they figured out a way to create content with no writers and no actors. They Correct. Save, they save a fortune. And one of the ways they do it is when you arrive on the set of Chopped about 6.30 in the morning, each contestant has a shadow, a person who's following them all day, writing down everything they do. Sometimes they have a handheld camera, sometimes just writing it down. When you're finished, whether you win or not, and when I won, they sit you in a blue room, which is a video room, right, with a blue screen, mm -hmm. and they put on a teleprompter, everything that you did throughout the day. And they ask you to read it back in first person present. So it'll say, Rick, drop the apple. And you say, oh man, I, and now I dropped the apple. What am I gonna do? You know, and you do this whole thing and they edit that into real time. So if you notice on Chopped or Beat Bobby Flay, the contestants are narrating themselves. Yes. We're writing the show. Yes. And not getting paid. <laughs> we're acting and not getting paid. It's brilliant. It's not brilliant. It's kind of shitty. But, uh, <laughs> but the way they do it, where they, and the same thing on Bobby Flay, they sat me down in the room at the end and I sat there for two and a half hours after being there all day, mm -hmm. recreating my day in first person present on video. So they had the audio, mainly they use the audio. Occasionally they'll show their head in the corner in a small screen, but mostly yeah. it's just the audio 
of me narrating what I did in first person present. This is podcast gold right here. <laughs> I, I'm so glad we're talking about this. Not, I mean, I honestly, don't sue me for telling <laughs> you that. <laughs> No, no, it'll no, be good. It'll be okay. But, uh, but no, because I've watched a lot of Food Network in my life. You know, it's sort of it's per it's the perfect kind of. I'm not ready to commit to something too much kind of television, and mm -hmm. I do love to eat and I like to cook and 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 it's good entertainment for me. And 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 this is something that I always suspected. And I bet you there are a lot of people listening right now who've watched a lot of Chopped and may have seen your episode. I saw your your episode. Um. I don't think I saw the second one. You said you won twice. I don't know if I've, if I, I was in the first uh, chop champion series. Okay. Okay. So I won my first round and I finally got chopped in the finals, which Alex Cornishelli actually came and cried. Oh, but uh, I fucked up. I, I overcooked my wild boar. It was, just, I, I knew it, but yeah. And Mark Murphy and those guys, we all got to be friends from that. Cause I was like this close to winning the first chop champions. They called my family confidentially and said, we want you to come down to New York and be in the studio because I think Rick's going to take this. And of course I, I, I fucked up, uh, <laughs> but the whole family was there. It was, it was really, really emotional. That's, but yeah, the that's first job champion was cool. Oh, I think my dog is curious. Hi Linus. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Hey Linus. <laughs> my, but, my crazy puppy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised my cat hasn't shown up. Um, but that, that see, and that's amazing. Cause that really, you know, I, Obviously, I'm. I see it, and and I see the show happening, and then they cut to a contestant saying, "I can't find the butter," you know, right. and then they cut back to the show, and I, I I I assumed, well, they must shoot this afterward, you know, they must sort yeah. of get them do a debrief with them or something. But it's interesting because I didn't know how they did that, but the the fact that you explained that they they're they're shadowing you, mm -hmm. uh, and essentially having you write the show. Or, or at least write your part of the show is really amazing to me. Yeah, and, and I wonder if that's a formula they really concept. Yeah. I wonder if that's a formula they repeat on, on all, you know, basically most of reality television. Now that I watch reality TV, I understand that part. Of it. Yeah. yeah. Not, not that I don't watch a lot of reality TV, but what I mean is if I watch something that's reality TV, I say, oh, yeah, we're definitely using the same format, whether it's the, the wives of Las Vegas or whatever the hell it is. You know? Yeah. Know. Did you feel, I mean, cause when I watch the show and I see the basket open, I think to myself, there, there must be some chefs who are just like, Oh fuck. You know, when the basket opens and, and you sort of see it happen in real, you know, that they just are absolutely mystified and they don't know what to do. Yes. Um, it sounds like you, you yeah. went with your, uh, you know, the counsel of your wife and, and your own instincts, yeah. Your, yeah. Yeah, your own experience. Um, but w was there any experience at, at any point during those shows where you opened a basket and said, oh, my God, I don't I have no idea what I'm going to do right now? Um, oh, my God. Yes. Not I have no idea. But th yeah, there's like, you know, you know, when you have an old computer and the hard drive goes. That's what my brain would do for a minute or so. Um, and then, you know, I kind of, kind of comes together and it also comes together as you're doing it. Like, you know, I would, in my first immediately make a plan, but then as you're cooking and kind of adapting to the plan and the time goes really quickly and some things change and, uh, you know, but it, it's definitely a rush, a brain rush. The physical rush is getting it done, but the brain rush is figuring it out. There was nothing really in the basket 
that stumped me. But at the same time, I was in the earlier ages of chop where most of what they used were real ingredients. And now there'll be like a fruit cake or yeah. some packaged Chinese, you know, bubble tea that isn't a food. It's food and it's an ingredient, but it's not like a raw ingredient, like a meat, a vegetable, a yeah. fruit, an oil, you know? Yeah. So I, I watched Chop recently for the first time in a while. And my wife does the same thing she used to do. She'd, she'd stop it right after the basket opened and say, okay, what are you going to make? And I'm like, the fuck am I going to make with that? <laughs> like, you know, candy bars or whatever. Yeah. Right. So it definitely, it definitely is a little more, a little weirder now that the ingredients have changed. But um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, and Bobby Flay was the same way. I mean, you know, Bobby Flay, beat Bobby Flay was actually a lot of fun um, because what they do on that show is they say, okay, you're going to compete against one more chef. And if you win, you go up against Bobby. Let's decide what dish you're going to make. So I was down in the city and I was sitting with some kid. He had to be like 22 years old, like right out of college. And he said, so you're going to be on a holiday episode. Uh, what do you cook for the holidays? And I start rattling off my Italian background and my step stepfather's uh, Puerto Rican, some of that stuff. And he was like, not too enthused. And I said, what else do we do? I said, you know, they're making the latkes for the Woodstock Jewish congregation for the last 20 years. And he just looked at me and he said, you make latkes? <laughs> and he smiled. And I said, I make latkes. He goes, you're making latkes. So on Bobby Flay, I had about three months before the actual shoot from the time I got accepted. And they made me set up my iPhone and video myself with a stopwatch making latkes. I had 45 minutes in segments, timing it till I got it perfectly so that if I did get up against Bobby Flay, I wouldn't screw up. Wow. Because if you don't finish your dish, it ruins the show. Sure, so of course. important to them. So I actually uh, worked in the kitchen and just, you know, practiced. I mean, I made them a million times, but to make them and basically made a chart, you know, peeling the potatoes, two minutes, grating the potatoes, four minutes, and made a whole timeline. And that's what they wanted to see a time line of how you make your food so that you would be successful if you actually did it pretty cool yeah i mean so crazy to think that the, that this one and now now i just i have to ask before we move on real quick so uh, the, the conceit of the show is these two two contestants come in or two chefs come in and they compete against each other and the winner <clears throat> excuse me the winner uh goes up against bobby flay and essentially gives uh shows bobby flay their what it is they're going to cook, right. right? So Bobby Flay sort of like, oh, now I have to make latkes. And you know what? And Bob, to Bobby Flay's credit, he's a really good cook. He has about when when I when we do that little shoot where you know you meet Bob, you win your first round, and then you're on the center stage with Bobby, and he's okay, Rick. What are we going to make? And I said we're making potato latkes, and it's like ah, latkes. Well, then they they cut, move cameras around. There's probably between ten and twenty minutes before the next segment starts getting shot. So Bobby runs over and is conferring with one of his sous chefs or a couple of his sous chefs about what he's going to make. But he really only has 10 to, he doesn't know what I'm going to make. So See, really that's amazing. Has, he only has 10 to 20 minutes and he wins 80% of the time. And that's, I mean, and that that's, that's very cool to know because again, right. you know, based on everything you've been telling me about the level of production that goes into quote unquote reality TV, I would have, I would have almost thought, oh, he must know ahead of time. So that's yeah, actually yeah. very cool to know that that he doesn't. And no, he, I, just, he knows how to make food taste good. Yeah. He so that on acid and fruit and heat and things. So he wins a lot because I think a lot of chefs have these signature dishes that look great and are, but they 
they're not as good a chef as Bobby Flay, so they may not taste as good, even though, yeah. oh, my signature dish is, is a rose con pollo and I've made it a million times, but it might not be that great. Yeah. Where you know, right. Bobby can take that same dish and add just a little vinegar and suddenly the judges go, wow, it's popping, you know, yeah. which is good. Yeah. How did, what, how, what were the results of that episode? Did, did, did you beat Bobby Flay? Oh, oh yeah. I kicked his ass. I swept him. <laughs> all, three, all three judges. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. yeah. That is so, so awesome. I was like scared yeah, to ask. Was, but that- I actually get more accolades on the street for that because one of my friends, Shadow Holden, whose mother was one of the partners at the Spectrum, actually, was one of the producers of Beat Bobby Flay. He was the audience producer. He was in charge of the stadium and all that. Yeah. But, um, you know, he would, we were talking about it. It's like Bobby built this show where he is the anti-hero and rooting against Bobby is the theme of the mm-hmm. show. The judges, have you watched it before? Bobby, Bobby Flay all the yeah. time. Yeah, the judges, the whole thing is about creating um, almost like a Tony Soprano, like an anti-hero yeah. that you want to yeah. lose. But deep down, you're not sure you really want him to lose, you know. So, you know, Bobby creates this whole anti-hero thing. And it's fun to beat him. When I'm on the street, I was in Saratoga a few weeks ago. And guy, I just hear, beep, beep, Bobby Flay, like somebody else. <laughs> they, they love that Bobby Flay, which is cool, you know. Yeah. They, 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 love to, they love to hate Bobby, you know. Yeah. Now that I think of it, I might have actually seen the episode that you were on, but because yeah, I used to watch it all the time. I haven't watched it in a while, but it's, uh, called, uh, it's called It's a Family Secret. So I don't know why, but I think it's probably from about, uh, I don't know, season five or six. But if you yeah. just want, it's, it's a family secret. It's good. It's good. Yeah. It's yeah. Fun. Oh, yeah. And pe- people listening to the show should I, I bet you can probably find them on YouTube and stuff, right? I mean, people should go on YouTube or, or on, find the, them on YouTube. Shops. Food Network oh, is there a like, licensing? Uh, they have bot nonsense. police. You know, they take everything down, but you can find them on, like, I have a fire stick. If you just go to the Food Network, beat Bobby Flay, you can see mm-hmm. all the episodes of right. Chop. You can go back in time and find them. Yeah. Oh, that's no, good. They, they definitely have bot police taking stuff down all the um, time. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, that's super awesome. I'm really happy to hear that you, that you won that. Um, against Bobby Flay, you're right about the anti-hero thing. That makes a lot of sense, and yeah. I, actually, it's kind of kind of cool of him to be willing to play that part to play that part in some ways. Um, it's you know. turned out to be his most popular show. Yeah, as a matter of fact, a little selfless, uh, shameless PR. The Beat Bobby Flay cookbook just came out, and my locker recipes are in it. That is fantastic! Congratulations. I'm, I'm in the book, which is yeah. Cool. That's great. And and are you also an author? Because I want to start talking about what's yeah, going on. I wrote, I, wrote a, I wrote a book called We Want Clean Food. Oh, yes. Yes, that's I, right. My PBS series. Yes, I used to watch uh, the PBS series. A million years ago. That was like 2003, um, which seems like a million years ago. Yeah, I know. It does. And, uh, you know, I have like two or three books that are in the can at a time. I'm trying to get them out. That's part of what, you know, future life is. I'm doing so many things right now. Okay, so people can keep an eye out for that, and 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 yeah. you also have um you also have a s- series of spices. Yeah, when I you- when I um so what happened was in in uh, when COVID hit, I went into like um, panic repair mode because I owned my own business for twenty five years, and we closed New World Home Cooking in Saugerties in April of eighteen, and finally sold it by the twenty nineteen sold the building. But, you know, we went, we had some owning a business, especially in the Hudson Valley, you know, we had Hurricane 
Floyd and Hurricane Irene and Hurricane Sandy. I had a lot of like jump in and fix the world kind of brain. So mm -hmm. when COVID hit, Sarah Jane, who was the general manager at the Bistro and I, we went into repair mode and we built a, a store and we rewrote menu things and did pizza night and tried to make it work. But after a couple of months, it was really clear that the, my partners, Scott and Ed, wanted the Bistro and we weren't all going to be able to make money during COVID. So I basically mm -hmm. sold them the name New World Bistro Bar, which I had owned took mm -hmm. the money from that and launched um, my hot sauce and seasonings business. Rick Orlando's best brand. I've got three hot sauces. I've got two barbecue sauces that I make in partnership with nine pin cider, six dry rubs. And then I launched different products, uh, seasonal things, you know, like I'm about to make another batch of what I call umami bomb, which is a local wild mushroom seasoning. I got a bunch of mushrooms I've been dehydrating through the fall. And we're in a lot of stores and it's people love uh, purple haze and dirty blonde hot sauce. They're kind of legendary. So uh, it's a lot of fun for me. Do you have an online way for, for people listening to, um, to access those things? Yeah. I mean, there's this online store. If you just go to rickorlando.com. Okay. My, my store is there. My food travels there. My events, I'm doing cooking classes and pop-ups. They're all, everything's on one page. Yeah. Okay. So everybody listening, if you want to get some delicious seasonings or hot sauces, learn more about Rick Orlando, uh, go to rickorlando.com. And you you are on Instagram too. Are you just Instagram, at Rick Orlando? Facebook, Chef Rick Orlando, Chef Rick Orlando on Facebook, Chef Rick Orlando on Twitter. Uh, what am I? So many of them. It's kind of blurry. On, I know uh, the socials. I think on TikTok, <laughs> I'm Purple Haze guy, you know, whatever. But you can find me through the website. All the links are there, you know. Yeah. And then, okay. So I want to just very quickly say, or, or at least ask you about music because you, you were first and foremost a, a musician and you're still making music. And it's, it, it's been a while since we talked about this in particular, but you, you released a record recently uh, or at least a single. I, I'm not sure single, if it was yeah. a full length, a single. Okay. Uh, single. Yeah. Um, is there, do you want to direct people to, to hear that? And what's the name of the project again? Uh, so uh, it's it's with Andy Chernoff, who was, still is, the mastermind producer, songwriter of the band The Dictators. If you don't know The Dictators, they came out around the same time as the Ramones in New York. I loved them as a teenager because when they came, when I got their first album, I think in 75 or 76, it was called The Dictators Go Girl Crazy. And it was hard rock. It wasn't punk rock. It was hard rock, but it was irreverent. Just things that you relate it to at 17 years old. By the time they came out, bands like Kansas were doing Dust in the Wind and everything was getting really gothic and really distant from like who I was as a kid. And suddenly I heard the dictator and I was like, oh, this is exactly, you know, what we want to be is a bunch of knuckleheads on the street corner drinking, you know, Coca-Cola and, you know, giving each other noogies. It was perfect. So anyway, Andy built that band. And he's one of the legends of underground music in New York. And we're good friends. He started, he uh, moved up here. We got to know each other. And I, I did a little cover band called Rick the Chef. It wasn't, it was not just it was some of my originals, but I threw together a little band with uh, Spike Priggan, Andy Chernoff, and uh, Doug Weigel. Doug plays with Reckless Eric. Spike's played with everybody. All these guys are on the Woodstock area. There's so many amazing musicians who played with so many famous people who are hanging out. So I said, hey, you want to yeah. do a few Friday night shows? And so Andy and I got to be friends. And then when COVID hit, he called me and said, I got a tune. 
called Born Hungry and You Need to Sing It. And he had recorded the mother tracks. He said probably, I think it was maybe 2014 in Memphis and it was an outtake. They never did anything with it. And I listened to it, did a few lyrical tweaks and sang it. And uh, we released it and it came out and it got on Outlaw Country. And I think little Stevie played it on Underground Garage. Had a little spurt. It's called Born Hungry. Um, and it's on uh, it's on Spotify and all that stuff. It's pretty good. It's kind of yeah. funny. A little yeah, no, I listened stuff. to it when you sent me the link. I listened we to it. We did a video. We had this guy, yeah. uh, Ger- Gerald, a uh, little French dude, does a whole bunch of amazing videos in New York, came up for a day and he said, where are the most uh, weird, iconic food places? So we went to like Eng's, which is like a 80-year-old Chinese egg roll joint and a ice cream joint. You know, we just went around to goofy places and videoed ourselves uh, sing, singing about juicy steaks to cows and all this stuff. It was it was silly, but it was fun. Good fun. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So people can find that on YouTube, I'm assuming, the video. Yeah. 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 Born Hungry. Yes, sir. Okay. And they can find you just in general at RickOlando.com. All my links for my social are on the bottom, on the webpage, but yeah. Okay, great. So, you know, first hub, first stop hub could be the website and then they can find you on Instagram and all that other kind of stuff. I remember uh, opening for George Clinton at the channel back in the 80s when I was in Skin and George Clinton saying, we're everywhere. Everybody knows about it. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what you you have to be. You have to be everywhere these days. Yeah. And that must have been exciting you know, for George freaking Clinton. I saw I saw Parliament once in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, and they played for like four hours straight. It was insane. Oh, wow. Yeah. When I was in uh, in the 80s, I had a band in Boston called Skin. Right. Yeah. So I had come from kind of underground, new wave and punk, and then got really into like songwriting. I was selling some tunes like Pop Structure, Elvis Costello, was my hero, you know, really writing mm-hmm. fastidious little tunes. And then I discovered like really got into the talking heads and then all the bands that were below them that were influencing bringing like both R&B and African and South American music into underground rock and then get British bands like Gang of Four that were funky but noisy so I started a band called Skin with my old drummer and we got some guys in Boston and we were one of the most popular bands in the city from like 84 to 86 um you we would do these like hour and a half marathon no stop dance party funky dirty, you know, noisy guitar, but like serious funk rhythms and stuff. And we got to open for everybody. We had a great manager, Jody Goodman. We got, we opened for anything that had anything that you could dance to. The Violent Femmes, uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the Neville Brothers, uh, Clinton, uh, anytime, a lot of one hit wonders like Icicle Works and all those goofy bands that came through, we we got to play with, which was really, uh, really fun, really, really cool. Our shit's out there. Our music's out there. It's pretty cool. Pretty interesting. All right. So people listening, go to, go find skin, go dig yeah. up skin, go, do your, do your, you know, 21st century research on, on the you can find them on my, this, this, this on my YouTube uh, channel. There's a, 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 a playlist of music. You see some of my music there. Okay, great. And, and, and what's your YouTube channel called? Uh, Chef Rick Orlando. Chef Rick. Oh, I mean, easy, easy peasy. Yeah. Chef Rick Orlando. No K R I C. Okay. So th- Rick, thank you so much for being on this the show. Is great. Yeah, okay, it's awesome, been great. To, yeah, it's been really great talking to you. I feel like we could do an episode two easily. <laughs> we only got up to 1989. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We got a, got a little further. We got, yeah. we got chopped 2011 or something. And I and, take people uh, to amazing places. I took people to New Orleans before COVID and to Sicily. I've got like 
really good connections. So we try to give you a more, we call experiential trip where you learn and meet people that you're never going to meet going on your own. And you're yeah. never going to meet going on your own. That's, that's what I love to do. So. Yeah, you just got, I mean, if this is something that I've been meaning to talk with you about and I forgot, I'm sorry, but so you no, just right. got back from, I mean, you just got back from Europe. You were in Italy. Yeah. And, I was, and so I, did a tour. I took a, a 54, well, it's actually ended up being 13 people on a nine day uh, Sicily immersion tour. And then when they left, uh, my wife showed up and we hung out in Sicily for a couple of weeks, a couple of, about a week. And then we went up to Florence where her family was. Yeah. Still is. So, oh yeah. So this is a whole other side of Rick Orlando is that he is also a travel host and he, and he takes people on these amazing tours. And if you are curious and interested in the idea of going on an international trip with a, a very experienced chef who knows cuisine, knows international cuisine, oh. and they want to f- go with you on a trip, if you have one planned for the future, for any future time, how would they get, how would they make that happen? Go to rickorlando.com again? Or is- um, we, we just got back from Sicily. We're currently, as a matter of fact, when I'm done with you, I'm on the phone with my contacts in Italy. We're setting up an April trip. They're really cool. Yeah. Again, you know, you can go on one of those bus tours where you see, you know, the Coliseum and stuff. Those are fun. But what I try to do is in nine days, give you maybe a quarter of what we do is what you'd expect. We go see some amazing cathedrals and things that, cause you want to see them. Yeah. But a lot of it is eating on, we call them zero kilometer meter meals. There, they're kind of like farm to table, but way more farm to table than we have here. Right. Uh, we eat with farmers. We was one place we go and literally the farmer's mother cooks us a whole like four course lunch. I mean, you know, it's really cool. I mean, we, That's we fantastic. really great. Yeah. Really great places. Meet some artists and artisans. And, uh, and then we hang out in Palermo, which I got to tell you, Palermo is one of the coolest cities. It kind of reminds me of New York in the late eighties. It's got a, art music. It's a little grungy, but mm. beautiful, a lot of history and people, or on the streets at night, you know, they have music everywhere. Palermo's is a great, great city, especially if you're from a generation that doesn't want New York to be Disneyland like it is now with, you know, $2 million studio apartments. And Palermo's still, you can still live there and you can still party there. And have fun. Palermo's still the real deal, it sounds like. Yeah, real so, deal. I, yeah, not, I mean, so that's awesome. Yeah. Right. And, and this, I mean, really, this, not to make too obvious a point out of it, but that kind of brings us full circle back to the beginning of our conversation about curiosity and trying new foods and going off the beaten path. And I think it's yeah. really awesome that you are doing this and, and um, you know, introducing curious people to uh, food that you wouldn't, you know, like, I'm sure there are places in Italy where you can find a McDonald's. You could fly all the McDonald's way to Italy. Everywhere. Yeah, right. You could fly McDonald's, you see Burger King, but. Right. So to get the real uh, deal and. Yeah. And, and, you know, but that it's not that many of them, you know, people eat, people are really, really kind of rigid about the way they eat. But, you know, the most fascinating thing about when I take people on tours of Sicily is they realize that almost nothing that we eat resembles the Italian food you get in restaurants here, except for pizza. Yeah. There's no macaroni and meatballs. There's no chicken parm, not a ton of red sauce. You know, it's, it's very different. I think Naples maybe has more of that in Rome because they have a different tourist element. But Sicilian mm-hmm. food is almost Middle Eastern. There's couscous and raisins in the food and nuts and stuff. It's very exciting. Very yeah. different. All right. Thank you so All much. Right. Good. I've, yeah. been, I've been really, really awesome talking with you. I, I, um, I appreciate you taking the time. Man, yeah, it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much right, for, right. for joining. Let me know when it comes out. I'll, I'll post it for you. I'll okay, promote. great.
All right. All right. Talk to you soon. This episode was produced and edited by yours truly. Big thank you to Rick Orlando for being on the show. A little bit famous theme music by Jay Darius. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll see you next week. 